Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for fans of Arkham Horror, the card game. I'm your host, Frank, and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. So- sorry, Frank, I was interrupted by a mysterious white furry creature. Oh no! I- it's come from yeah. the moon. <laughs> Take me away. Yeah, I'm very well, Frank. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well as well. I'm just recovering from a, a cold, which is nice, so apologies, listener, if I sound a bit bunged up. It's the season for it. It is the season for it, yeah. And how are things with you? Yeah, good. Actually, I'm not long recovering from a cold either. I don't know whether it's it's spreading its its uh, insidious way across the UK. Yeah, Matt Newman and his curses. Uh, I've managed to play both of the Path to Carcosa scenarios again in a four-player group as well now. Oh, nice. Yeah. It's something else, isn't it? The sort of uh, big group play. It was. It was even more fun the second time round, especially the last king, which is the, the second of the two scenarios. I really love that. I think there's a lot of work to be done figuring out the best route through that because we did better on our second second crack and no one died. But I think there's still yeah. a bit of room to improve. It really reminds me of the Midnight Masks, and I'm actually really glad you you mentioned that it's good to work out a a sort of optimum route through because that's actually sort of what we wanted to talk about today. Listener, you may remember back in the mist of time we did an episode all about approaches to deck building and things to think about while deck building and ways that you could improve your deck building. And Peter and I thought that today we would do an episode on approaches to play. So some of the common mistakes people make, probably at the end of the episode, but more generally things that you could be thinking about that take you from being a okay Arkham player to maybe a good Arkham player. But before we go any further than that, we should mention a spoiler policy. So, Peter, what what packs might we be mentioning in this episode? In line with the spoiler policy we talked about last episode, we're going to stick to the most all the packs in the current cycle that are released and then the core set. So, today... We're probably going to focus more on general comments today, but we might reference the Path to Carcosa deluxe box. None of the packs are out yet, so we can't talk about those. We'll talk about the core set, and we might mention in passing some elements of Dunwich, but no real story spoilers on that. Precisely, yeah. Because this is a sort of general episode, I don't think we're going deeply into story spoilers, are we? No, that's right. Really, the starting point for this episode, as far as I've conceived it, is... You've thrown a deck together, you've maybe played through the core set once, you've run into all sorts of challenges that have led you back to the rules reference to work out how does this work or how does that work, and you've maybe got to the end of that campaign and found it punishingly hard at the end, and you've thought, I'm sure there are things I could have done better, and that's hopefully where Peter and I can come in and help you a little bit. So we're not claiming to be total experts at this game, uh, but I think we've, we've both played enough and talked about it enough that we can maybe help people who are who are getting beaten constantly uh, maybe think about some ways to improve their game. Ho- hopefully people who are seasoned experts, they, they might listen and, and either learn something they didn't know or, or maybe drop us an email which will give us the magic answer for being amazing players ourselves. Yeah, if there's some, if there's some ritual we should have performed to gain that level of food, then maybe they can tell us. Yeah, I think it's also that some of the experience for the game comes purely with with playing it and until you've got a few games under your belt it can be 
it can be tricky to know where you're going right or where you're going wrong. That, and that's for two reasons. One, it's about knowing your scenario and knowing what you're about to be facing. But then also it's about knowing your own deck. There's a good example of, of, of knowing the scenarios. We've just talked about it. So I remember when we first played Midnight Masks, it seemed an impossibly big task. But after a few times playing it, you learn, you learn first of all, what all the cultists do. So you know what requirements they all have for... for What's the phrase used? Parlaying. In, in, parlaying with them. Yeah, although you can defeat some of them, can't you? Adding them to the victory display, I suppose. Yeah. Anyway, there's, you know, you, you learn what the cultists, you, you need to do with them. Uh, you learn where they're going to be. And you can actually blast through. I remember the first few times I played that, we'd spawn a cultist, deal with that, move on to the next one. And we'd maybe get three or four if we were doing well. But these days, it's a case of, you can't wait for one cultist to be dealt with. You just stand in the right place to deal with the cultist with the right stuff you need. When it comes up, boom, it's gone straight away. Yeah. I'm really glad you mentioned that scenario as well, because Midnight Masks is probably that first step up where one of our biggest tips are thinking about your opening turns. Probably you're opening two or three turns, so your first sort of nine or so actions. And Midnight Masks depending on how many players you have, starts with Acolytes in play with Doom, so they want to be dealt with. But there's also a requirement to collect clues, and you're also wanting to spread out and start covering the town of Arkham. And I suppose one of the challenges there is working out how much you all split up and rush around to try and go and kill Acolytes, and how much you actually spend early turns building up your board and balancing setting up your own cards with making progress in the scenario and stopping the agenda's progress i've absolutely like had a, had a terrible outcome from that scenario based on the first two or three turns uh, if you don't get on top of that scenario in the first few turns then you know your first agenda advances very quickly and then you've got a big enemy to deal with and you've only got half the time left yeah yeah yeah, yeah. precisely we normally have a target that we want to try and get a couple of cultists from the cultist deck before the first agenda advances, even if we're not going to necessarily get them off the board, just have spent our clues and be making progress. So uh, what do you think, Peter, are, are priorities in not just the Midnight Masks, but in your first couple of turns, broadly speaking, as a player? I think it, my, the first thing I would do would be to have a plan to advance the act that's the very, very first thing you should do. And also to maximise the amount of time you have before the agenda advances. Yep. So I think those things combined should then drive what you do in those first few turns. If you need clues, then your seeker or whoever is getting clues needs to find a way to get them and then start finding them. That should yep. be a main priority. And then your other characters, your support characters, can start getting ready to protect the seeker as they find the clues. Yeah, that's a nice, very nice, clear way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, the, one of the difficulties of talking about opening turns is that we now have 16 investigators and, you know, a uh, Sephina opening turn is going to look very different from a Mark Harrigan opening turn or, well, it's going to look different from anyone because she's got such a handful of cards. But, you know... But yeah, I mean, hopefully of anyone. probably are going to look more more similar than to each other than anything else. But, yeah... I think I think your point that yeah seekers want to start getting just getting clues and often they're able to do that without playing anything else but maybe they want to play an ally or uh, if you're Daisy a tome 
and, and move on from there. One thing I see happening for some people when they do their opening turns is they say, I'm going to do a setup turn. And you go, great, go for it. And they spend all of their resources and maybe play three different cards to get their board going. And I think that's where I mentioned balancing setting up your board with your progress. If you go down to two cards in hand and say a single resource at the end of your turn you'll have three cards and a couple of resources and you might have some good cards down on the table but sometimes that trade-off of emptying your hand to get a good board is not necessarily the right way to go and I think that's when I started to think about that more that felt like a step in my play that I might have a, a handful of cards I want to get down but going broke to do so isn't always the right way to do it some scenarios pressure what's what you've played as opposed to what's in your hand and obviously this is a case of knowing the scenario knowing where you might be able to you might lose a, an asset that you've played that was expensive or something like that but it's often the case knowing what to hold back can be as important as getting everything played would you agree yes yeah i i think that, that that's a that's a good point frank i think people tend to see everything in their deck is necessary for them to play so you put all these cards in your deck and you want them all. It, it's a bit of an art to think about what you need right now. There's a there's an inbuilt safety valve in Arkham where all of your cards, or most of your cards anyway, have icons on them so they can help you succeed at tests. Yeah, yeah. You don't need them all. <laughs> yeah. All, all through the game. You know, there's a chance you might not even draw all your cards. So you can't rely on getting particular ones into play necessarily. You have to just deal with what you've got. Yeah. And th this is where, even if you have a preferred weapon in Guardian, you're probably going to run between four and six weapons. So if you don't see your preferred weapon, you at least see a weapon, because hopefully Guardians will be doing some combat at some point. The other example I think of when you say that is Agnes's signature asset, the Heirloom of Hyperborea, that... That's a great card if you see it in the first turn because you know you'll be playing more spells. But really, after the first turn, if you've already played a Shriveling and maybe something else, the value from that card is really going to decline and it becomes then a, a really nice willpower boost and ceases to be useful later on. And that thing where maybe there's a, a quiet moment in the scenario and you've got some resources and you decide to put down another asset just because all assets should end up on the board at Listener, you don't need to play all of your assets. There might be a point when, you know, later in a scenario, adding more things to the board is not actually going to give you any more help. You know, playing a pickpocketing, there might not be any more enemies to come. You might not be doing any more evasion, and it might just be worth holding that back in your hand before it can, you know, rather than waiting for it to generate value for you. And the other thing, I've seen this apply to a lot of other LCG style games, is don't think you have to be totally set up before you do anything. So yeah. even without her magnifying glass or without Milan Christopher, Daisy is still very good at finding clues. Obviously, if you have yeah. those cards down, it makes you more efficient because you're succeeding more and you're getting resources while you do it. But don't think you have to, to, to prioritise those cards over progressing the act before the agenda advances. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the act again because... As a beginner player, you can often be very focused on your own play area, your hand, your deck, what you're doing as a player. 
And when you reach that point of confidence where you can keep an eye on what's the agenda doing, what's the act doing, as you said, how to stop one and advance the other, but also maybe having a sense of what's coming up next. If you're collecting the clues because it will spawn an enemy, as in Midnight Masks, knowing that that's going to be the case and what you have to deal with that. If you've played scenarios before, you might know what's on the back of agendas. So be able to be thinking about, okay, well, this is going to happen. In Curtain Call, which I think is a good example of this, the agenda has a very specific effect that might happen multiple times. And being prepared for that and going, right, it's going to flip over and the Royal Emissary is going to turn up in the theatre. And that's a fairly beefy enemy that does two damage and it spits out horror. Knowing that that's happening shortly is is very important and useful to know. And that could change your turn from being a, oh, well, I'll just try and get a couple more clues to thinking I really do need to prioritise either drawing into my damage options to deal with this or moving away from that location if I'm not ready to deal with it. Something like that. Should we, We've touched on this a bit. Should we talk about actions, cards and resources? Mm-hmm. Yeah. These things are... In one way, they're roughly equivalent because you can use an action to draw a card or to gain a resource. But it's not the case that one of those is worth an action. An extra action costs a lot more than one resource, as we can see from Leo de Luca, who costs five, even though he is an ally as well. Yeah. So well, what what are your thoughts on that, Frank? What, what what advice can you give people on using their actions most effectively? That's a good question. It's a tricky one, isn't it? This certainly comes down to knowing your deck. Some decks run fairly resource light, so maybe you don't often need resources, and other decks run resource heavy. And some decks, the ways that they generate resources are through cards, through playing emergency cash, or getting a burglary on the table, or an alchemical transmutation, or forbidden knowledge, whatever it is. So part of that, I think, is if you're feeling short on cards or resources... It's a case of thinking about your deck and thinking about the ways in which you might get more of those things rather than simply blindly spending an action for a resource, spending an action for a resource. It, it kind of, it, it, it's, it's worth saying that those actions, the basic actions, it's good that they're there and sometimes that's the right thing to do for the situation you're in. But as a rule of thumb, you don't want to be spending actions for resources or spending actions to draw cards if you can help it. Because they're not particularly efficient uses of your time. If you look at other cards that let you do those things and accelerate them, like, say, Emergency Cash or Preposterous Sketches, those are things that let you do those those basic actions a lot quicker. Yeah, yeah. So when I most recently played Midnight Masks, I was playing as Min, and I had a setup turn. I mean, listener, this is me now contradicting everything I've said. I had a setup turn where I played three cards out of my hand and went broke, but it was a Pathfinder, a Fieldwork, and a Magnifying Glass, uh, an upgraded one for free, and I had an action left, and I could then move for free, get plus three to my next investigation, and investigate straight away. And I decided to go for this slightly broke style, because I was then set up to kind of zip around the board, and because I was getting a free move every turn, and a free plus two from Fieldwork every time I moved into a location with a clue... I, I was sort of just, yeah, on turbo mode at that point. But what that meant was I had very few cards and resources. And so what I resolved to do was not commit cards to tests of my own and simply let the natural card draw and the natural resource generation of 
playing the game of the upkeep phase refill my hand. And so there were a couple of turns where then I was a bit low on cards and resources, but it didn't matter because I already had, I'd sort of decided that what I was going to leverage on the board was this cool setup. And what it also meant was that the next couple of turns, I only investigated. I moved myself around, moving into high shroud locations with the boost and moving into lower shroud locations if I was just going to sit and investigate repeatedly. And I was at that point sort of in, felt like in, yeah, beast mode almost. Min is very powerful. So that's maybe that's an example that the exception that proves the rule. More broadly, I think the thought about efficient management of cards, resources and actions is just remembering that you only get three actions unless there are particular circumstances. And so there's got to be a really good reason to draw a card or get a resource where so often you could be doing other things. The the flip side of this is to remember that there are certain cards that give you either free actions or let you carry out a certain action for free as as a fast action, for example, like, say, shortcut. Yeah. And while these always have a base use of saving you an action, which is good, because you could save the action and then gain a resource, <laughs> it's worth saving them yeah. for the turns where you're particularly pressured, where you don't have quite enough actions to do everything you need to that turn. If you need to evade a monster, get somewhere else and investigate. For example, having a shortcut at that point is really helpful. Yeah, Leo is a great example as well. If you go broke in your first turn playing him, often the opening of the scenario is the time when you have the the most time to do that because you can then recover. And as long as you're not then running a particularly resource-heavy deck after that, his value will play out slowly but surely over the next four, five, six, seven turns, however long he stays around, and make all of those turns more efficient because you'll be adding an extra action each turn. So that's, again, a kind of trade-off that might be worth considering. Leo is a great example, like the heirloom of Hyperborea, of a card you don't necessarily want to play early, uh, late in a scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've thought a little bit about what's in your hand, what you're playing, and simply keeping in mind that trinity of cards, resources, and actions, and, and thinking about what, what you're giving up to leverage one of the others. That's all well and good while you're running around a scenario just collecting clues, not being attacked by the encounter deck, what happens if you're starting to come into heavy weather with the encounter deck, and particularly if you're starting to experience lots of enemies, Peter? Well, I think the the encounter deck and dealing with the encounter deck is probably the most crucial step you go you, you can take when you're trying to improve how you play the game. It really benefits you to play that core scenario, or those, that core campaign rather, a few times to really understand the cards, what's going to come up, what's likely to come up, what the worst thing that can happen to you in a particular scenario is. If you've got these encounter counselling cards like Water Protection, you need to know what to save those up for. A a good example of a core campaign is Crypt Chill, which can destroy one of your assets. If you know that's in a scenario and you're sitting there just with your Leo in play from the first turn, maybe you want something else in there as a bit of a buffer in case that crops up. Yeah, back in the mists of time playing Skidzo Tool, I used to run Burglary in Skidzo Tool precisely so that I could play Leo and play Burglary on a first turn. And I had a one-cost asset on the table then that then when I inevitably drew Crypt Chill, I had something that I could happily chuck to it because committing cards to try and pass a willpower 4 test with Skids' puny willpower 2 is a, 
a real hard ask. And, and this applies if you know the kind of enemies that are going to show up, you can be prepared to fight to fight them. If you know what kind of encounter cards are come up, you'll know what stat boosting cards that you're likely to have, what weapons you need. These are the yeah. kind of things I think you need to keep in mind. Uh, the more you know the encounter deck, the more you can prepare your deck to tackle it. Yeah, precisely, precisely. I think also knowing if you're if you're a guardian and you're going to deal lots of damage, or you're a mystic and you have shriveling, knowing which enemies are the ones that you want to pile the damage on, and which enemies are going to come up that are harder that you haven't yet seen in curtain call the first time the royal emissary turns up i've seen people immediately kind of go all out and pile damage onto the royal emissary to kill it but it's probably going to come up at least one more time knowing how that scenario works and actually it's it's maybe not worth going broke just to just to deal with with that enemy and another example i suppose is in blood on the altar there is a a big fight in that scenario and maybe saving your combat resources for that fight is the right way of doing it if that's what you're going to do I mean, blood on the altar sort of challenges you to save everything until the end and and i think the other thing is is certain scenarios impose different challenges on things like investigation yeah so the last king has a particular challenge on investigation where there's almost no investigating to be done almost everything is done via parlay yeah so that that changes how you play investigators like, say, Rex or Daisy, who would rely on a traditional investigation, so they'd get a Milan down and a magnifying glass down. If you get those cards down early and you, you spend a lot of resources putting them down, you're going to be disappointed in The Last King because Milan <laughs> yeah, is, is, yeah. is barely going to trigger. You get a few cues yeah. off the, the base location, but you might not get any more over the course of the investigation, over the course of the scenario. Yeah, yeah, quite right. Um, Last King, I'm glad you mentioned that as well because it's also a useful scenario for thinking about enemies and thinking about enemy movement. In The Last King, everything is very connected. The the furthest away one location can be from another is two steps. So it's quite hard to to get away from enemies in that scenario. There's also no no loops in it. In Midnight Masks, you can run a merry dance around the town of Arkham and have night gaunts chasing you and and sort of survive like that for a, probably a little while until everything goes wrong. But in Last King, thinking about where you are, where your brawler investigators are, and where enemies might possibly be is very important and very useful. And I think that's often people, when they play, when they get to their final action, maybe they've got nothing left that they want to do in their location. And they go, okay, well, I'll just move on to this location then just as a final action, because then I'm there ready for next turn to do X or Y. Taking a moment to think about, do I actually want to move on? What happens if I draw an enemy where I am? What happens if I draw an enemy where I move to? How will I deal with it in either situation? Where is my where is my guardian to protect me? That can be really useful. So I suppose all of this comes under the bracket of positioning. That's maybe how I would think of it. Uh, it more broadly hints at that thing of, Probably you want to move into a new location that you've never seen before with your first action, because then you've got actions to spare to deal with whatever happens when you get there. But also, you probably don't want to be leaving your group with your last action, because you're then requiring someone to come and help you if that's what's needed, or 
you're also isolating yourself if something were to, to happen. Or if you're the fighter, you're going to have to go back and help other people if if they're then stuck with enemies and are going, can you come and help me, please? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's important to do that. Although you can end up in a situation where to make progress in the scenario, you need to split up to approach yeah. it from different yeah. angles anyway, if you're both searching for clues, for instance. And then yeah. you're, you're, you're saying on top of each other, you can't, you're not as efficient. Yeah. So you definitely need to balance those two things. You don't want to be out by your, out on a limb by yourself where no one can help you. Especially if the other players don't have any means of accelerating their movement. At the same time, if you stick together too much, you know, you might not be best utilizing your entire party. So try to stay close, but not too close. Yeah. It's the classic thing of these sorts of episodes, isn't it? In, in podcasting, it's, don't do this thing, but maybe do it sometimes. It's that middle way of, uh, yeah, you can't. It's quite hard always to to pick a. Uh, there's always an exception. There's always someone who can do things differently. Midnight Mask is a good example again, where it, I think that Midnight Mask is a great example for a lot of stuff we talk about because it's such an interestingly designed scenario, and it was so different from what I was expecting to happen when I played Arkham. But it is. In that scenario, you've got nasty things that can happen. You've got lots of tough enemies that can crop up. But you also have some enemies that are, are and the cultists that you need to deal with that crop up in different places. So the uh, Wizard of the Order is in that, the encounter set for that deck. And if you don't deal with him yeah. quickly, you run out of time very quickly indeed. Same with the Acolytes as well. So you need to be able to move quickly and get to those Acolytes and deal them. And they might appear anywhere on the board so yeah. that scenario yeah. kind of necessitates you spreading out to deal with the cultists in the cultist deck and in the encounter deck. But there are some nasty cards in there and you can get quite beat up if, say, a Night Gaunt shows up and someone isn't able to evade it or fight it, then they're really... Because they're, they're hard to evade as well, even though they've got a low evade value. Yeah, they've got that extra caveat that evasion is doubly hard for them. Yeah. You're you're quite right. We we actually again that recent scenario that I played, we the the agenda was definitely going to advance the following turn, so we were going to get the masked hunter, and we knew that, and so we were saying, well, let's all stick together because we need we need to support each other, and it's going to go for the person with the most clues, which is where it spawns. And then we said, but hang on a second, we've got a whole turn here, and we're on four clues, and we need six for the next cultist. So if between us we can get two clues and spend one action to spawn a cultist, then we'll all have zero clues. And at that point we decide where the masked hunter goes. So we can place the masked hunter on the Zoe player straight away. Zoe will get a resource and just be ready next turn to spend all three actions smashing him. And that that felt really nice and it felt like a little bit of foresight gave us a really good purpose for that turn to push on. Obviously, there are risks to have no clues in Midnight Masks. You can get punished for that as well. But I think we'd seen those punishing cards already. And it felt, yeah, it felt very satisfying to manipulate where an enemy came came to us. It uh, Slightly gaming it, but it was also, we had that bit of knowledge and we leveraged it. And yeah, it was, it was very satisfying. That's, I think, often how enemies can end up being problematic is not that they're necessarily the hardest to fight, but they end up with the wrong people. And then either the Guardian is spending ages getting enemies off people to then kill them. So that sort of soaks up all of the 
guardian's actions or the less efficient fighter is trying to kill an enemy you know say it's just a ghoul minion and you go well i can hit a, a combat two but you're only doing one damage so you spend a couple of actions and a couple of tests trying to kill a ghoul minion where machete armed roland would just one shot it so yeah i think i think that is a way that enemies pressure how much time you have and make and essentially waste your time uh, i heard someone saying if you can kill an enemy in fewer actions than their health, you're doing well. So, for instance, a ghoul minion, if you can kill it in one action, fantastic. If it's taking you three actions to kill a ghoul minion, something's going wrong. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, you, you want to be saving those, either your weapon cards that deal multiple damage in a hit, or saving your cards like Vicious Blow to finish off or to put into an attack. If you can get three damage in one attack, that's brilliant. That's really good. Uh, two damage should be what your fighting characters are aiming at. One damage is fine if you're dealing with an enemy with one health. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. Rats. Uh, but you shouldn't be... Yeah, or, or rats. But they are rare <laughs> these days. Yeah. So we're going to move on and talk about some common mistakes now. But just before we do, I think in sum, the feeling I have about this game is that knowledge is power and any information you have can be useful. And that's not to say that you shouldn't really get involved in the role play elements of this game and immerse yourself in what would my character do, because I think that's an utterly rewarding way of playing. But knowing some of the things about the scenario can normally be useful. I suppose the other thing we've not mentioned is is table talk, Peter, and that the game encourages you not to tell people what you have in your hand. And that's also a, a time where knowing who you're playing with and the sort of things that they might be able to do means that you don't necessarily have to have someone say, well, I've got the following events in my hand so I can do X or Y. It might be enough that if the Safina player says, I'm going to get those clues, you don't need to question how or why. You know that they know what their options are for getting clues and will go and do it. If if Min says, I really can't handle an enemy, that doesn't mean that she could like slowly kill it. It means she really can't handle an enemy and she'll be sort of flailing around helplessly if the min player is saying that you could take heed of that as well so yeah even even knowing who you're playing with i suppose is a, is a kind of knowledge and can be very rewarding right the way we thought we'd do common mistakes is go through the four phases of the turn not in exhaustive detail but just mention a couple of things that we've had people ask us about or we've seen players do and will tell you what the correct way is as far as we know it to be. Do you want to start us off with the mythos phase, Peter? So, so I guess I guess the aim here is just to make sure everyone is is not screwing themselves out of any help that the game gives them. Yeah. The the, the rule book is actually is, is really well laid out and if you if you go through it with with a with a logical mind, you can probably solve most of the timing questions yourself. If you can't, there's loads of places you can ask for help on the rules questions. Uh, we'll maybe talk about some of those right at the end. But for now, let we'll, yeah, as, as Frank says, we'll run through the different phases and just make sure some of the common mistakes we see people asking about aren't being made. So in the mythos phase, you don't do this the first in the first turn. That's important to remember. Yes. Yeah. But this is generally the phase where all the bad stuff happens. Yeah. So first up, you you advance the agenda then if it's if it's reached its threshold all doom in play is removed that's something that a lot of people and, and i think we didn't get right the first time round 
Uh, and I know other people haven't got right as well. So if you've got player cards with Doom on them, if you've, there's encounter cards with Doom on them, or the Doom on the agenda, uh, that all, all goes. So what you can do is time the use of player cards, which add Doom, with the agenda advancing. Yeah. So, for instance, if it's a six Doom threshold and you're on five, you're in what's known as the Witching Hour, and if you then have a Blood Pact, you could place three Doom on it in that turn... And you'd end up with 5 plus 3 is 8, and you'd be adding a ninth Doom the following Mythos phase, but you'd still just be at the threshold of 6, and all of that Doom would go. So you can you can add Doom with impunity, which is very satisfying. So yeah, all Doom in play leaves once the agenda advances. The other thing I think is, is a bit of a difficult one in this phase is, is understanding engagement... I mean, this this is throughout uh, engagement and spawning. When you draw yeah. an enemy, if it starts in play with you, it starts somewhere else. Uh, and in fact, we got this. We had to go back to the rulebook of the day because we had a question about this. So I think I can explain this very simply. If you draw an enemy as your encounter card draw, it spawns engaged with you. And the really, there's only two exceptions to that. One is if it says on the card spawn and then tells you somewhere that's not where you are. And the second is, is if it's aloof. So in those two instances, if you draw an acolyte, it says spawn any empty location, and an empty location has no enemies and no investigators on it. So in that instance, it wouldn't engage you. The spawn instruction would override you drawing it, and you'd place it somewhere else. If the, it was a whippoorwill and it said aloof, it would be at your location, but not engaged with any uh, of the investigators there. But other than that, even if there are other investigators at your location, if you're drawing the enemy off the encounter deck, even if it says prey on them, you can ignore that as well. If you draw the enemy, it, it spawns engaged with you. So we should we move on to the investigation phase? I think those are, those are the key things people yeah. usually miss about the mythos phase. Yeah. I think just from a general playing point of view, at the beginning of the investigation phase, after the mythos phase, it's definitely worth planning out your turns as the investigators. Now, you don't want to have to go yeah. into a huge amount of detail about the exact cards you're going to play, because officially the, the contents of your hand should be private. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with saying where you're going to do, go, uh, where you're going to investigate. If you think you know, someone else can deal with a particular enemy, you can say to them, you deal with that, I'll deal with this. And sp spending some time planning out the whole turn and then having a contingency in case cru crucial parts of your plan don't come off, I think is vital. I think I'm really glad you mentioned that at this point as well, because often people get to the end of the turn and start planning the next turn, but you've not yet seen what the mythos phase is going to do to you or how things might have changed. And it's always better to have drawn whatever enemies or treacheries you're going to draw, seen what the agenda has done, and then be, you know, there's no roadblocks between you making a plan and putting it into into action at that point. So yeah, I, I completely agree. I think, I think I would say it's even possible that sometimes when I play, most of our time is spent in that planning phase, talking about what to do. And to me, it's, yeah. it's some of my, the most fun I have with the game is trying to solve the puzzle of, of the turn when you've got a particularly intimidating board state. If if you've had a bad mythos phase and a bunch of enemies have come up that you don't want to be there, or maybe the agenda's advanced as well as getting some nasty cards, 
you, you know, it can be a good 15, 20 minutes. We're sitting there chatting about who's going where, someone else yeah. going to the bar and getting another round in. You know, it's it could be it could be difficult, uh, but it's very rewarding. Yeah, no, it is definitely. It also, I mean, depending on your play style, listener, if you're the sort of person who doesn't like doing that, maybe you'd enjoy playing a more reactive investigator who doesn't need very much setup, who's sort of happy to tag along and be helpful where and when they can be. So, for instance, survivors are fairly good at winging it and can deal with things as and when they emerge, particularly Wendy. So maybe that's someone to try out to be like, no, 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 I don't, you know, I don't feel I need a strategy. I'll just follow you and join in. and I'll get some clues sometimes or I'll maybe have some tricks up my sleeve, but I'll, I'll essentially survive by myself. Or similarly, if you don't want to be involved in that, you could be playing a lone wolf character who essentially doesn't want to hang out with the rest of the investigators and, and wants to survive on their own wits. So that's Just don't be surprised if no one comes to help you when you get in trouble. Yeah, you have a card in play that says Lone Wolf and you're asking <laughs> for help. Yeah. The other the other thing that can be a slight surprise with the investigation phase is that in the Mythos phase, you draw an encounter card each in player order. But in the investigation phase, each investigator can act in any order. You still have to take all three of your actions at the same time, so if Peter and I were playing together, if I went first, I would do my turn and then Peter would do his turn. But but it doesn't matter if I'm the lead investigator or Peter's the lead investigator in that instance. You can you can behave in any order. I think that's why you end up planning you can end up planning for quite a long time, because you have a well, if you go to that location first, you can engage that enemy and do that, and then I'll come in behind you. Oh, but you wanted me in there with you to throw you this card for your test, so how am I gonna get in there first? You, and that could be quite satisfying, the working out who goes where and, and when and how you do it and what you, what you sacrifice to to try and get the optimum going. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, the enemy phase. This is, a, this is another one that I think I see quite a lot of questions about. Ostensibly, the enemy phase is quite simple. First, hunter enemies move one location towards the nearest investigator, and then any enemies that are engaged with investigators hit them once. Simple, right? What could be complicated about that? The common things I see people asking about are, do hunter enemies move if they're exhausted? And the answer is no, they don't. Hunter enemies need to be ready to move. And how do you decide where hunter enemies go. And sometimes I've seen people say, well, I drew the enemy, but I'm now no longer engaged with it. Does it always go for me? And again, the answer is no. Hunter enemies always go for the nearest investigator, and you count by locations. And if there's a tie in nearest, the investigators decide. So Peter is one location away, and I'm one location away, and there's a hunter enemy. We just always say Peter. Easy. Or, you know, you do it You do it the way you'd like to do it. The exception for this is prey. If a hunter enemy, or any enemy, but particularly in this case a hunter enemy, has a prey instruction, that supersedes any other option. So, Peter and I are a location away. Hang on, hang on. It's only, it doesn't supersede any other option. It's only a tiebreaker. Yeah, exactly. That's, I was going to clarify that. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. So, so start again. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, so, so hunter enemies still go for the nearest enemy, but if there are two nearest enemies, rather than the lead investigator deciding who it goes to, the prey instruction kicks, kicks in. So if it says prey highest combat, and Zoe is one location away, and Daisy is one location away, it will always go for Zoe. So that's, yeah, that's where prey kicks in. Prey is a tiebreaker. It doesn't tell hunter enemies where to move all the time. It only tells them where to move if they're about to engage someone and there are multiple eligible choices. Perfect. And upkeep, Peter. First thing that happens in the upkeep phase, you have a player window. Yeah. So you can use things like Arcane Initiate or Forbidden Knowledge at this point and this point only. Straight after that... Yeah. And why that's worth noting is, if you've already used it in the turn, you you can't wait for upkeep for the card to ready and then use it again, because the, the only player window in the upkeep phase is right at the start of the phase. <laughs> why that's worth mentioning, Frank, is that if you've got a card like that that you haven't used yet in the turn, now is your last chance to use it before the cards would ready anyway. Yeah. So make sure you, if you're going to do it, make sure you do it now. Straight after that, the card's ready. That includes enemies, so any evaded enemies that are currently... Uh, what's the opposite of ready? Exhausted. Exhausted. <laughs> any, <laughs> God, this is terrible. Any enemies that are exhausted, ready at this point, and engage with people at their location, and there's people at their location. After that, then you get a card and a resource, and it, it's in that order as well, isn't it? It's card, then resource. Yeah. Which matters for some of the weaknesses. Yeah. Finally... Once you've drawn a card and you've you've gained your resource, you discard back down to your maximum hand size. And this is the only point in the turn where the maximum hand size is checked unless specifically mentioned on another card. Yeah. T- typically it's eight, but there's quite a few cards that alter that in various directions. Yeah. And And when your hand size is altered negatively, it doesn't force an immediate discard. It's only at this point in the upkeep phase when when you find out that your hand size is lower than you thought it was, that you then have to chuck cards. It's good to keep it in mind what your maximum hand size is throughout your turn, and then you can know if you've got cards. You're going to have to get rid of at the end of the turn anyway. You know, you can pitch them into tests or try and play them. Yeah. So that's the phases of the turn, and those are the common mistakes that people might sometimes make. I'm sure there are other mistakes that sometimes come up, and by all means, listener, write to us and... Tell us something that you've seen if you want us to mention it or tell us something you're not sure about and we'll try and clarify it for you. The other couple of things that aren't based in the phases of the term that I'm just going to mention are trauma and spending clues. So if you're playing a scenario and you take damage equal to your damage threshold or you take your health or you take horror up to your sanity, you're going to be eliminated from that scenario. And what that means is you're going to take a trauma, either a physical trauma or a mental trauma. The ongoing effect of having a trauma of either type is that you start every subsequent scenario with one damage or horror, depending on what trauma you have, on your player card. You can then heal that damage or horror in the course of the following scenarios, but every scenario will start with, you will have the trauma, so you'll always start with the damage or horror. And I've seen a couple of people go online saying, how do I heal trauma? And the answer is you can't. Once you have a trauma, you have it forever. But you can heal the damage or horror that it forces you to take every scenario, should you want to. On spending clues as a group, so some act cards have an objective that would say, for instance, objective, only investigators 
in the hallway can spend the requisite number of clues as a group to advance. For instance, I think I've made that one up. I think, it, I think it's at the end of the turn. But anyway, normally when you're advancing an act and you spend clues as a group, you can do that from anywhere. But if you have one of these objectives that specifies a location that the group need to spend clues at, that means all the clues that you want to spend need to come from investigators at that location. It's not enough that one investigator is there and they're triggering the advancement of the act, but then the clues that they want to spend, they're spending from investigators who aren't there. That is not allowed. Get all the people who have the clues to the right location to advance it. And that's, that's I think, the, that's it, right? Yeah, that's, can't think of other that's literally every mistake people make. Everyone. No, no other mistakes exist yeah. to be covered. As with episodes like this, if you have plenty of thoughts that are like, well, you got that completely wrong because I play as Wendy and I love to draw cards with my actions because I need a full hand of tricks. By all means, write to us and tell us. As we said, there are always going to be exceptions and players who play differently from others who either set up more slowly or set up more rapidly or whatever it is. Or there are times when, for instance, mystics quite like to move into a location towards the end of the turn because they might then want to use a right of seeking or whatever it is. For all of those things, we welcome your comments. We're on Facebook at Drawn to the Flame. We're on Twitter as at Drawn to the Flame. You can also email us with Drawn to the Flame podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for the emails that have come in recently. It's always really nice to get messages. There's been a couple of just people saying that they enjoy the podcast and that hopefully we've helped them improve. So hopefully this is another another episode like that for those people cheers kyle to say thank you to our logo designer ben who you've actually met now yeah who was i playing midnight masks with it was ben yeah which i'm very jealous of well we'll have to get have to get the whole gang together at some point uh, yeah one day one day maybe we'll do a, a trip together to sweden yeah I, I mean i love sweden oh no sorry the the, the small white beast has returned and he's just decided he's <laughs> gonna knock everything off every surface <laughs> If people want to follow Ben on Instagram, he's SF Rembrandt, and he's, he's he's a lovely guy, by all accounts. Yeah, it was really nice to have a, a guest who was, yeah, pretty set on smashing through some articles. <laughs> we, had, we had a couple of couple of different campaigns on the go. It's really fun. If, if you ever get the chance to be playing as a catchy and your opening turn is... Action one, play level five shriveling with five charges. Action two, play grotesque statue with five charges. Like, you're in a powerful place at that point. And I sat opposite Ben while he did that, being like, Mate. amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Level five shriveling is good enough as it is, but in a catchy, it's even better. Yeah, a five shriveling plus it... two willpower plus two damage. Is it five? Spell is because it... shriveling's normally three charges, is it? Am I going mad? No, it's four. four, four oh, okay, right, yeah, yeah. I'm getting it mixed up with... Right of Seeking. Yes, Right of Seeking. Ah, see, did you hear that? That was, that was the... Yeah. That was, that was Sinclair. What, I, uh, what a day. I know. Oh, God, just wants attention. <laughs> You're like, I can imagine you sitting splayed, like, your hands on everything. <laughs> <laughs> He's just everywhere where I, I can't stop him. Yeah, you were asking how people can get in touch with me. Yes, yeah, a couple of minutes. I am united everywhere. So on the Discord and on Twitter and on the subreddit, 
and everywhere. So if you see a United, that's me, and say hello. I had a quick glance on Reddit and saw that you were doing a kind of revisiting the core set and thinking about what each faction got from the core set. Yeah, that's been interesting, actually. And thank you to everyone. If anyone who has posted there is listening, thank you for your input. It's, It's all really interesting. Before we start doing the cards for Path to Carcosa, we've been running back through the core set, just a faction a day, and only the core set cards. Looking at how those have changed, how people's perception of those has changed. And it's interesting looking at how small our card pool was back then. And, yeah, and for sure, for sure. how the factions have, have really developed since those days as well. There's some cards which I remember looking at and thinking, oh, this is great, I'm never going to use this in a deck. Nowadays, um, my deck building and my teamwork and everything has, has matured to the point where I'm like, well, I don't think that's really worth the slot. I think there's other stuff that's more useful in that deck. Yeah, I think we've now seen our first couple of investigators who maybe don't need emergency cash. We're reaching that point where, yes... An action for three resources is great, but you can now build decks that really float low in terms of resource curve and don't don't want to spend actions doing or even have resources at all. other options for those resources as well. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think we've actually got two cashless desk, uh, decks in our in our four player team. So I think Akachi's running the transmutation and uncage the soul, and as Min, I'm I'm just not running cash because I, everything's really cheap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. your most expensive card is probably a three-cost event or your signature asset, and that's it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and if people want to get in touch with me, you can tweet to me about your most recent games. I'm at FB. Uh, shout out to Gary, who always lets me know how he's getting on. Always enjoy hearing from you, mate. And I'm also on various places as Zozo and Zooey Glass and things like that. Oh, Another way that you can improve your play, if you're not sure about a card, jump on ArkhamDB and look the card up. It may have a little FAQ attached to it, um, and that goes for encounter cards as well. If you're not sure about, ooh, how does corrosion work in the latest set? Turns out we've already heard from Matt Newman, and it's already on the database. So, yeah, that's always a, a useful resource to just go and look and see if a situation that you're dealing with is one that's actually other players have dealt with and found answers for. So yeah, that's my final closing tip. Great. Great. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you. Cue closing music. Well, should we talk about... Should you briefly run through some common mistakes then? Is that worth doing? Yeah, I think so. Is there a sort of headline for what we've said so far i don't know really no just play well really (laughs) knowledge is power right that's the yeah yeah basically let's talk about upkeep frank and not make any mistakes okay because, you know, only an idiot would make a mistake on the upkeep phase. Mm-hmm.